chapter 5, 13th Street. Arlene didn't mind 13th Street. There was a bodega owned by Arabs on one end of her block and a bar for old men on the other. She could walk Jafaris to school. Arlene could have done without the hypes, crack addicts, who'd recently moved into the abandoned house next door. But a few more houses down, a girl was leaning to play the was learning to play the violin. Her new apartment was coming along too. There was a time when the house was a stately thing. Built in Greek revival style, it was a two stories of sandstone block with twin columns supporting an awning over the front door. A pair of picture frame windows adorned with peak pediments facing the street, as did a larger second story window whose pane opened on hinges. But over the years, the house had deteriorated. One column base was settling, causing the overhead awning to slope sideways. The columns, porch, and window pediments had been painted ash gray, and an imposing iron-barred outer door had been installed. Arlene, Arlene didn't like walking up the front steps, which their flanking paint and mismatched stair rails on either side, so she always used the side entrance. Arlene had thrown herself into making the apartment a home. The previous tenants had left behind a large armoire, a bedroom dresser, a bed, and a refrigerator. There was even more in the basement, dishes, clothes, an upholstered chair. Arlene put it all to use, rearranging the furniture and stacking the dishes next to her nice porcelain plates, the ones she had been given years ago by a domestic violence shelter. She claimed the front bedroom and gave the boys the one in the back placing their twin mattresses on the ground and organizing clothes and dresser drawers. She unpacked a stereo and listened to old-school hip-hop tracks on burned CDs, her favorite being Tupac's Keep Your Head Up. In the kitchen, she hung a humble drawing of black farmers hoeing a row. Over the bathroom door, she affixed the sign that she had found at a drugstore. It said, Today worried you yesterday and all is well. In the basement, Arlene had also come across rollers, brushes, and a five-gallon bucket of white paint. She lugged everything upstairs, tied a wrap around her head, and gave the walls a fresh coat. She went ahead and painted the stairwell leading to the upstairs unit, too. The job complete, she lit a stick of incense to mask the paint smell and looked around. She felt pleased with herself. Content. <clears throat> the days passed, and Arlene and her boys settled into their new home. After school, Jory sometimes challenged other neighborhood boys to a game of cans, Jafaras looking on. Using a basketball, Jory and his competitor tried to hit soda cans flattened on the sidewalk, earning more points for further shots. He was a lanky boy whose arms and fingers seemed to be growing faster than the rest of them, a condition he tried to conceal under oversized sweatshirts and coats. He wore his natural hair and, he and had a relaxed, agreeable way about him. But Jory was fiercely loyal to his mama. If Arlene need, needed to smile, Jory would steal for her. If she was disrespected, he would fight for her. Some kids born into poverty set their sights on doing whatever it takes to get out. Jory wasn't going anywhere, sensing he was put on this earth to look after Arlene and Jafaris. He was, all 14 years of him, the man of the house. Jafaris was a big kid the biggest in his kindergarten class. 
While Jory was all knees and elbows, Jafaris had a round chest and defined shoulders with high cheekbones and cornrows that always needed redoing. When Jafaris grew bored, he would scavenge the basement or back alley for anything he could find. Mop handles, rusted tools, dog leashes, pieces of plywood, and pretend they were tanks and helicopters locked in a battle. After dinner, Arlene would watch reruns with the volume turned low or read through Jafaris' individualized education program, <clears throat> otherwise known as an IEP, evaluations, or flip through her prayer book. Some nights, she climbed the stairs and opened the upper unit's unlocked door to give herself a little privacy. Arlene liked that the upstairs unit was vacant. She preferred things quiet. One day, a friend, a friend gave Arlene a cat, a half-black, half-white thing. After Sharina said they could keep it, Jory named him Little and began feeding him table scraps. Jory laughed when Little would spring at the loose shoelace or gulp down a ramen noodle. Jafaris would pick him up and press his nose against his ear. Both boys especially loved it when Little caught a mouse. He would drag the thing into the middle of the room and smack it around. The mouse would take different routes, trying to figure out what Little wanted. Bat, bat! The mouse would tumble and roll with every swat. At some point, the pathetic creature would burrow under Little's arm, hiding. Little would let the mouse rest and warm itself. Then he might reach down and grab the creature with his mouth and throw it into the air and, enjoying the effect, do it again and again. Eventually, the mouse would just lie there motionless, and Little would look up with cool disgust, wondering why the creature didn't get back up. Jory opened the door and called out, He having an asthma attack! Jory had walked Jafaris home from school. Arlene stayed on the love seat, waiting to see how bad it was. When it was a small attack, Jafaris' op ma mouth opened and closed like a caught fish. When it was a medium attack, he made an O with his mouth. When it was bad, his lips curled back, and he breathed through his nubby teeth. Jafaris walked through the door, making the O face. He shrugged off his backpack and leaned on the love seat like an old man after climbing a flight of stairs. Jafaris, go get my bag, Arlene said. The boy nodded and went to the bedroom. When he came back, Arlene pulled out the albuterol and shook it. Jafaris put his mouth to the inhaler and breathed in. <clears throat> but their timing was off. Blow it out. Don't be playing with me, Arlene snapped. Jafaris missed the next try, too. But the third filled his lungs. He held his breath, puffing out his cheeks the way children do before jumping into a pool. His mother counted one, two, three. At ten, Jafaris exhaled, took a breath in, and smiled. Arlene smiled back. She gave Jafaris albuterol every morning and every evening. Before bed, he got prednisone, a steroid, through a PARI, Proneb Ultra Nebulizer, with plastic tubing and an airplane cabin mask. Arlene called it the breathing machine. Jafaris's asthma had been improving. Arlene remembered when she used to rush Jafaris to the hospital every week. Jafaris' father had given him his name, and lately Arlene had been worried he might have given him other things, too. His father had learning disabilities and anger issues, and Jafaris was beginning to exhibit similar characteristics at school. He excelled at reading, but struggled with other subjects, and he pushed his classmates around. He had been evaluated, but didn't qualify for additional help. Some teachers had suggested medications, which made Arlene bristle. I don't like medicine. I'm totally against Ritalin, 
I think he needs more one-on-one -on -one attention. I don't want to medicate him until he's seen a counselor and done gone through that. Arlene had met Jafaris' father at a movie theater at the Mayfair Mall when she was working in the concession stand. It just kind of happened, Arlene recalled. We weren't in no real relationship. They tried for one, but Arlene discovered he could be a violent man. He went to prison soon after she left him. He gave Jafaris little else beyond life. It had been that way, been the same way with Arlene's father. He had left after impregnating her mother, impregnating her mother, who was only 16 when she had Arlene. Arlene's grandmother served food in the cafeteria at Columbia St. Mary's Hospital, but her mother rarely worked outside the home. She received assistance and later married a man who held down a job. That man became a minister, which was the reason Arlene tried never to set foot in a church. When Arlene moved out at 17, she threw away the hand-me-down clothes her mother had made her wear to school. Ding-dong, her classmates would taunt when she walked past and recycled bell-bottoms. Arlene put rubber bands on the bottom of her jeans, but that only made the kids laugh harder. When she dropped out before finishing high school, her mother said nothing. She didn't care. Arlene moved in with a family that paid her to babysit their child children. During that time, she met a man who would become the father of her eldest child, Gerald, whom she took to calling Jer Jer. After Arlene discovered she was pregnant with Jer Jer, her man got entangled with the law. I didn't know nothing about having a boyfriend in and out of jail all the time. So when I met somebody else, during one of the times Jer Jer's father was locked up, I just left him alone. That someone else was Larry. He was a lean man with calm eyes and a wide brow. Larry had taught himself how to be a mechanic and earned money fixing cars in a back alley. On paydays, he would take Arlene out for Chinese food, her favorite. She would read the long menu but order the same thing every time, sesame chicken. They were poor and in love, and soon Arlene was pregnant with another son. They named him after Larry but called him Boozy. Larry and Arlene had three more children after that, a daughter and two more sons, letting Arlene's mother name their youngest, Jory. They liked it. Will you marry me? Larry asked one day. Arlene laughed. She thought he was joking and said no. He wasn't talking about no big marriage. Wasn't even talking about it at the courthouse, Arlene remembered. But he was not joking. When she realized this, Arlene dropped her smile and said she would have to think about it. What gave her pause was not Larry, but his mother and sister. They always thought they knew more. I was never good enough in their eyes. After that, Larry started running around. It crushed Arlene. But when he came back, she always held the door open. Until one day, he didn't come back. They had been together for seven years. This time, the other woman was someone Arlene considered a friend. That happened years ago. Sometimes Larry parked outside of where Arlene was staying. She'd climb in his van, and they'd drive around and talk, mostly about Jory. From time to time, Larry took Jory to church or let him spend the night or swelled his lip for getting in trouble at school. When Jory spotted Larry driving by the neighborhood, he'd holler, There go my daddy, and run after him. When Larry walked out, on her and the kids, Arlene was working at the Mainstay Suites by the airport. 
In despair, she quit and began relying on welfare. Sometime later, she found work she found work cleaning the Third Street Pier restaurant, but then her mother died suddenly. The grief overwhelmed her, and she left that job too. She later regretted going back on welfare, but it was a dark time. When she moved on to 13th Street, Arlene was receiving W2T, owing mainly to her chronic depression. She received the same stipend in 2008 that she would have when welfare was reformed over a decade earlier. $20.65 a day, $7,536 a year. Since 1997, welfare stipends in Milwaukee and almost everywhere also have not budged, even as, as housing costs have soared. For years, politicians have known that families could not survive on welfare alone. This was the case before rent and utility costs climbed throughout the 2000s, and it was even more true afterwards. Arlene had given up, given up hoping for housing assistance long ago. If she had a housing voucher or a key to a public housing unit, she would spend only 30% of her income on rent. It would mean the difference between stable poverty and grinding poverty. The difference between planting roots in a community and being batted from one place to another. It would mean she could give most of her check to her children instead of her landlord. Years ago, when she was 19, Arlene rented a subsidized apartment for $137 a month. She had... She had just had Jerger and was grateful to be out of her mother's house. She could make her own decisions. So when a friend asked Arlene to give up her place and move in with her, Arlene decided to say yes. She walked away from a subsidized apartment and into the private rental market, where she would stay for the next 20 years. I thought it was okay to move somewhere else, she remembered. And I regret it, right now to this day, young. She shook her head at her 19-year-old self. If I, if I would have been in my right mind, I could have still been there. One day, on a whim, Arlene stopped by the housing authority and asked about the list. A woman behind the glass told her, the list is frozen. On it were over 3,500 families who, who had applied for rent assistance four years earlier. Arlene nodded and left with hands in her pockets. It could have been worse. In larger cities like Washington, D.C., the wait for public housing was counted in decades. In those cities, a mother of a young child who put her name on the list might be a grandmother by the time her application was received. Most poor people in America were like Arlene. They did not live in public housing or apartments subsidized by vouchers. Three in four families who qualified for assistance received nothing. If Arlene wanted public housing, she would have to save a month's worth of income to repay the housing authority for leaving her subsidized apartment without giving notice, then wait two to three years until the list unfroze, then wait another two to five years until her application made it to the top of that pile, then pray to Jesus that the person with the stale coffee and heavy stamp reviewing her file would somehow overlook the eviction record she collected while trying to make ends meet in the private housing market on a welfare check. The upstairs unit on 13th Street didn't sit vacant for long. Sharina moved a young woman into the apartment soon after the paint had dried on Arlene's walls. Trisha was her name. Arlene and Trisha began talking and sharing meals. Arlene could be quiet and cautious around new people, guarded, but Trisha was an open book. She told Arlene that this was her first real home in eight years. 
Her last real home belonged to her sister, who had asked her to leave after Trisha told her what their father had done to her. Trisha then started sleeping in shelters and abandoned houses, but mostly she went home with men. At 16, she le learned to use her skinny frame, her flush and wavy black hair, her copper skin, a mix of black, Mexican, and white blood. The year before, when she was 23, Trisha had had a baby signed him over to her sister because she was using crack, mostly. After the baby came, Trisha found repairers of the breach, a local homeless outreach, that helped her get on SSI. Trisha was illiterate and fragile. Jory once reduced her to tears by asking, You special or something? But she was also laid back and sweet. Most of all, she was there. When Arlene and Trisha wanted to smoke to stave off boredom, or at the end of the month, hunger, Trisha used spare change to buy loose cigarettes at the corner store or fish stubs from standing ashtrays outside of fast food joints. When Arlene needed to run an errand, Trisha would watch the boys, and Jory, who saw Trisha as an equal or lesser, but certainly not as an adult, would tell her to watch her mouth around Jafaris. I was born to be cussing, Trisha would reply. One day, Arlene and Trisha watched a U-Haul truck pull up. Three women and a man walked up to the apartment and gave Arlene's door a knock. Sensing who they were, Arlene cracked the door and wedged her leg and foot behind it in case they tried to push through. A young woman introduced herself at the previous tenant as the previous tenant and said she had come to collect her things. The armoire, dresser, and refrigerator all belonged to her. Arlene told the young woman that Serena had thrown everything out. The woman looked doubtful, but Trisha backed her up. The previous tenant and her people left before discovering the lie. Once they were gone, Arlene and Trisha nodded at each other. Nodded at each other. After that, Trisha took to telling people that the women were old friends and that they hadn't met outside a corner store years ago and that they had met outside a corner store years ago when Trisha was just a girl and Arlene had, had told her, you were pretty female. There was no more to the story about Arlene meeting Trisha's mother in prison, about Trisha waking up in the hospital and Arlene being there, but it was all in Trisha's head. It was hard to know if she believed it or not. Trisha came to Sharina through Belinda Hall. It was the best thing to happen to Sharina in a long time. A black woman, not yet 30, with a round face and glasses, Belinda ran her own business, working as a representative payee responsible for handling the finances of SSI beneficiaries found incapable of managing on their own. Sharina liked finding tenants through social service agencies, which often vouched for tenants and put up some catch. But Belinda was a special catch. I've been helping this girl as much as possible because I want her to fill up my properties, Sharina reflected. The rent comes directly from her every month, so that's a damn good situation to be in. Sharina told Belinda that she would empty out all her units if she wanted them for her clients. I'm serious because I know I would get my money. Trisha was the fourth tenant Belinda had given Sharina since the two women had met three months earlier. Those poor and disabled enough to receive SSI, but not clean enough to be welcomed into the public housing, made up Belinda's client base. 
Belinda estimated that rent payments took between 60 and 70% of her typical client's monthly income. Many clients had little left over after Belinda paid for rent, utilities, and food. Because stable and affordable housing was a major problem for Belinda's clients, she cultivated friendship with landlords, whom she could then call upon in an emergency. Belinda once phoned Sharina over 5 a.m. because the heat in one of her client's buildings had gone out and she needed to relocate her that day. The faster Belinda could address clients' housing problems, the more clients she could take on and the more money she could make. Belinda charged each client $37 a month for her services. When she met Sharina, Belinda had 230 clients. What Belinda could offer Sharina and other landlords was steady, reliable rental income, and what Belinda got in return was a growing customer base, which meant more money in her pocket. Press 1 to leave a voice message. Sharina pressed 1. Arlene, this is Sharina calling. I'm calling to find out if you had, if you had your rent. Remember, we, we'd agreed that you were going to pay a little bit over to get caught up with the 320 you owed for Sharina stuff herself from finishing the sentence with your sister's funeral costs. She went on, um, I will be expecting the 650. Go ahead and give me a call. Arlene didn't regret, regret what she had done. Usually when there was a funeral, she couldn't even afford to buy Jafar's new shoes and would just, just scrub his best ones. She had missed funerals in the past because Jory and Jafar's didn't have anything to wear. But this was her sister. Not in the biological sense, but in the spiritual sense. They were close. She had long been a sickly girl, overweight and diabetic. Her heart quit after she'd been hospitalized for pneumonia and a series of other health complications. Arlene didn't have the money, but neither did anyone else. She, she would have been ashamed of herself if she hadn't pitched in. She gave half of her check to Sharina and the other half to New Pitt's Mortuary. Sharina felt bad when she heard about Arlene's sister. She made her new tenant a deal. Arlene could stay if she paid $650 for three months to recover the lost rent. Even if Arlene signed over her entire welfare check each month, she still would be short. But Sharina was betting that Arlene could put in a few calls to family members or nonprofit agencies. Arlene took the deal because she had no other option. Sharina and Quentin were in the sub suburban when Arlene called around the beginning of the next month. Sharina hung up and looked at Quentin. Arlene said her check didn't come. This was a half-truth. Arlene had received a check, but not for $628. She had missed an appointment with her welfare caseworker, completely forgetting about it. A reminder notice was mailed to Atkinson, or was it 19th Street? When Arlene didn't show, the caseworker sanctioned Arlene by decreasing her benefit. Arlene could have given Sharina her reduced check, but she thought it was better to be behind and have a few hundred dollars in her pocket than be behind and completely broke. Quentin kept his eyes on the road. Story of a life, he said. And that's the end of chapter five. Thanks, everybody.